Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. Dr. Stanley Ducharme is a clinical psychologist and consultant specializing in the areas of sexual dysfunction, gender, physical disability, addictions, relationship issues, and concerns of daily living. With over 25 years of clinical experience, Dr. Ducharme has worked with a wide variety of problems and has gained national and international recognition for the scope and quality of his work. I first met Stanley when he came out to South Africa to run a workshop on this very topic. And to this day, it is one of my favorite workshops I've attended. And he's been one of the most interesting people I've had the privilege of learning from. I hope that this episode is as educational for you as his workshop back then was for me. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I'd love to know how it is that you came to be working in this very niche area of sexual health. Well, I've been working in rehabilitation medicine uh, for some time. And uh, I, I started in terms of the sexual health. It was an area that uh, when I was being trained back in the 1970s, it was something that was just beginning to be integrated into rehabilitation medicine. And uh, at that time, people thought that it was an important thing for patients to learn about, although really no one understood sort of uh, how to integrate it into rehab, what to say and how to feel comfortable with it. So that um, uh, gradually I began to develop some programs, training healthcare professionals to feel comfortable with their own sexuality so they wouldn't feel embarrassed bringing up the topic, wouldn't feel anxious. And as we developed uh, training for healthcare providers, then they felt more comfortable uh, approaching people with spinal cord injuries and other disabilities, asking about these types of issues. I think that it's important to say that it really was people who had disabilities that were looking for answers to these kinds of questions. And the medical providers often didn't get the training in medical school, didn't have the answers, uh, and it really was people uh, who had disabilities, who had left the rehab hospital, who really wanted answers and, and wanted to, to be able to continue to have uh, intimate relationships. And I think that the growing consensus at that time, especially among healthcare providers, as well as the general population, was that once you have a severe disability, such as a spinal cord injury or multiple sclerosis or head injury, that you lost your sexuality and that uh, people were no longer perceived as a sexual being uh, after the onset of their injury. I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth, could it? No. Uh, and, and in still some ways, that kind of thinking is still prevalent uh, uh, on many levels that, uh, that people with uh, disabilities are often discriminated against, especially in terms of uh, 
you know, returning to the community, uh, establishing relationships and, and going to work and getting involved in all types of activities. Absolutely. I think overall they're, you know, put into a group and I hate to say this, but almost forgotten about as, as part of the population, which is, is awful. And especially when it comes to sexual health, when I did my training in, in sexual health in, in a long, long time ago, but still within the era in which sex positive education and information was starting to really um, pick up speed, we didn't study sexual health and disabilities together. They were not two topics that were presented during the course I was on. And the focus was on sexual dysfunctions and sexual difficulties that an individual or couples might face um, at any point in the sexual response cycle. Um, some stuff, fertility, you know, reproductive stuff, sexual assault, but this really important part of, of being human is often so neglected in, in many different population groups, but particularly in those with disabilities. So it's so interesting to hear what you're saying that, you know, you started this work a long time ago and it has come a long way, but I'm almost getting the sense it's just not far enough yet. No, I agree. And I think just to add to what you have said, I think sexuality often has been uh, sort of associated with fertility and uh, uh, sort of the mechanics. And that if you weren't able to sort of function in a kind of a traditional role, that uh, this was probably not something that you were going to be enjoying. The, the idea of uh, sex as being a pleasurable, enjoyable experience that uh, uh, forms important connections between people was almost really seen as uh, secondary. It wasn't really regarded as important at all. It was all about uh, fertility and children and uh, sort of the importance of sex and marriage. You know, um, continuing to live life according to a particular norm, but leaving out pleasure, leaving out um, yeah. intimacy and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, when you presented this fantastic workshop in, in South Africa in 2018, which is where we met, what really struck me was how there's almost this intense focus, obviously, on helping the patient adjust to this new chapter in their life. But so many parts of them that are excluded, um, despite those parts having been important when they were able-bodied. And, and also what's ridiculous is that rehabilitation uh, encourages and helps people to get ready to reintegrate back into the community. And if issues such as their masculinity, their femininity, their sexuality, how they relate to other people in those kinds of ways, if those aren't addressed, people just don't feel good about themselves. They, they really are not going to be productive back in the community. They are going to feel outcast. Uh, their marriages, their relationships are going to be in shambles. And uh, you can't just do the physical rehabilitation in a vacuum. You have to address the sexual and the mental health and the relationship issues if you want the person to be able to enjoy a full quality of life once they leave the hospital. Absolutely. And it's an integral part of a, of a romantic relationship. So you can't just exclude it now that something has changed for your patient or between a couple. So I guess if we were to 
talk about men versus women, and I'm talking cisgender women and cisgender men here, are they affected differently when it comes to sex and, and disabilities? Yes, they are. There, uh, I mean, there's some similarities uh, in terms of uh, uh, lack of sensation, difficulties with orgasm, difficulty with erections or lubrication, uh, but there are also uh, differences in terms of fertility, for example. Women after a spinal cord injury are able to uh, to have children uh, beginning about six months after the injury when they start menstruating again. Men have difficulty with ejaculation after the injury. So th there are both uh, psychological and in physical differences. And uh, I mean, part of it too is kind of culturally, I would say, that men, for better or worse, that are often seen as sort of more mechanical. The sexuality for men tends to focus more on the mechanics of how to do it and the, the, uh, the techniques where, where women, for whether it's true or not, sort of are often seen as uh, the, there's more sort of emotional aspects involved in their sexuality, which as a, just a side note, uh, is often why people speculate that Many of the drugs that have been developed to improve sexual functioning and libido are not really effective for women because they, they don't really address the, uh, the psychological relationship uh, issues that are so prevalent among women in their sexuality, where, where as I said, with men, it tends to be more mechanical. So, so there, there are big differences, yes. I, uh, I absolutely agree with you. As, as a woman, I can say that. And, and from the work that I do, I can say that. And from conversations with colleagues and other academics and researchers, I can say that, that while men, of course, there is a massive emotional element for them, women rely far more sexually on the emotional um, arousal than on the physical and men on the physical than the emotional. And so it's interesting to hear that, you know, if you are injured and thus disabled, your your mind and that emotional side is not going to be affected by directly by that injury, but psychologically, there's no way you can't be affected by that injury. So if I wanted to say that you have to learn how to let go again, because sex is all about letting go, it's about just focusing on the sensations that you feel, the things that you're thinking or the words that you're hearing or what you're seeing in front of you, it's letting go into that. I would imagine that for somebody who has, you know, now have got a spinal cord injury, that you're having to relearn how to let go sexually that is completely different from the way you would have done so before. Absolutely. Um, I think you're 100% right that... Uh, Part of what is necessary is to, to sort of be able to let go and relinquish some of that control. And that is very difficult to do after the injury. Um, that, uh, again, there are, so many, there are so many psychological issues in terms of performance anxiety and how is my partner going to uh, perceive my ability to satisfy them? Um, my, um, is my partner enjoying this? That people just can't let go of the anxiety and uh, some of the, the stress of it all. Uh, let me just also say a couple of things. In terms of we, early in rehab, people, we like to try in the US to educate people a little bit around sexuality early on, just so that they have a sense right from the beginning that this is gonna be an important aspect of their life still. 
and the rehab is a place to get that information. However, early on in rehab, most most people are focused on walking and getting hand functioning back, and they're in denial. So that often they're not in a place where they're ready to um, to be hearing information and receiving education about sexuality. So the real work in the sexuality happens really after people are discharged. Where that's when people are beginning to explore and they're curious about intimate relationships and uh, and are starting to uh, make some attempts to be intimate. But unfortunately, uh, they don't always have access to uh, experts in this area once they leave the hospital, which is why it's important, even though people may not be ready to get that specific information early on, it's important that they know that it's available to them. There are places to get it. They, they're doctors, they're physiotherapists, sex therapists um, can provide help in that area uh, long after they leave. Because typically they go to their doctors, uh, let's say a year after injury, and many of the doctors in the community still have sort of the old notion that, uh, that their sex life is gonna be limited and that there's very little that they're gonna be able to do now that they have these injuries. So it's important to start it early, even though the patients uh, might not be the most receptive to getting that information. It's almost like you, you as the as the clinician, are anticipating that this is going to be a little bit of an uphill battle to start, knowing that going in, but persevering despite the resistance. That's right. And one of the, one of the kind of critical things that I've learned uh, in my work in this area that I try and do early on is to begin to uh, develop a, an awareness with the patient that uh, sex is not going to be like it was before, that uh, it can be, it may ultimately be better. It's going to be different in many ways. And uh, that's still to be determined. The people though that do the best in terms of their sexual adjustment are people who don't necessarily try to replicate sort of the kind of sex that they had before the injury because, uh, because of positioning and so many issues have changed that uh, it, to try and replicate you know, sexual intercourse, for example, after, uh, after the injury, uh, often it's going to lend itself to somewhat of a disastrous experience, especially early on. So I try and like educate people that the, the people that do the best are really people who they can be creative, can sort of explore together and talk about sort of what feels good and how to pleasure each other and who are, so open and uh, uh, courageous enough to try new things that they weren't doing before, that maybe new positions, new, uh, new ways of giving pleasure to each other. And those are the people that really do the best. If, if people are just trying to slide into the old way of having sex, often those, uh, that ends in somewhat of a negative experience. What's really fascinating for me there is that whether you're able-bodied or you have a disabled body, you have to be curious when it comes to sex and you have to be open and willing to perhaps explore yours or your partner's preferences or needs or likes or dislikes. And that doesn't sound like it would change. You know, you have to continue to be curious. You, you do have to continue to let go. You have to be open and willing to explore and try different things. But also, I mean, I guess there's really a need for a level of acceptance that things are different now. Yes. That is true. 
Uh, and uh, I don't know if this fits in right here, but as sex therapists, you and I know that people come to these injuries with histories, early hit sexual histories that can also affect their ability to feel comfortable about their body, to feel comfortable with their sexuality. And a lot of their experiences, you know, if people have had trauma early on, sexual assaults, or have been sexually abused, or have been in abusive relationships, uh, or have body image issues or eating issues, all of those kinds of things are obviously going to affect an, an, an individual's ability to feel comfortable, to be able to engage uh, sort of in more creative ways of having sex, to be able to uh, feel comfortable with their body, sharing that. So that it's important that somehow that those kinds of issues get addressed as well, because those are going to prevent people from, uh, again, sort of accomplishing the task after the injury. So it, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum by itself, but, but anybody that has, all of us, you know, have histories uh, around sex and around relationships that, uh, that we carry with us that are, affect our, our future intimate relationships. We all do. We, we all have baggage. I guess exactly. I wanted to, to get into a little bit more of the specifics if we can. So okay. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about specifically about spinal cord injuries, um, you know, whether that is going to result in quadriplegia or paraplegia. But maybe if you can, just for my listeners to just describe what it means to have a spinal cord injury and how that could affect one's ability to function. Okay. How a, a spinal cord injury affects an individ, individual's ability to function happens in two ways. It depends on where the injury occurs on the spinal cord injury and whether the injury is a complete severance of all the nerves uh, at that level of injury. So whether it's a partial or incomplete injury. Quadriplegic or people who are affected in all four limbs have an injury in the cervical level, uh, the higher levels of the spinal cord injury, meaning that uh, they lose the ability to uh, have sensation and uh, below the waist, uh, as well, I should say really below the chest, below really the nipple line, and a lack of uh, movement and sensation in their upper extremities as well. Now, how much movement they lose uh, depends on the completeness and incompleteness of the injury. For example, some people with, who have very incomplete injuries may have some ability to move their arms, but maybe not to have the fine motor dexterity in their fingers. And for these people, again, in a sexual kind of way, these higher level uh, injuries are pretty much, all men are gonna have difficulties with their erection, which means that they can be sexually excited in their mind or see a, a stimulus that is exciting for them, but, they're, um, but that message is not gonna be conveyed to the, uh, to the genitals because of that break in the spinal cord injury. The only time that that they'll be able to get an erection is if there's direct stimulation of the genitals, maybe either by uh, a hand or sometimes clothing or sheets rubbing on the penis. And, and that's almost like a reflex response, which means that they would be able to get an erection, um, but only as long as that stimulation continues. So that uh, the problem is that often those erections are not, are not satisfactory for sexual intercourse. Soon as the stimulation uh, is removed, the, the erection gets soft again. So again, as we were saying, they may not be able to have sexual intercourse that, like they did before because they're just not able to sustain the erection without some kind of pharmaceutical help 
uh, men who are paraplegic, they become injured in the thoracic and sacral areas of the uh, of the spine. And again, um, they have no no use of their legs and uh, full use of the upper uh, part of the body, the trunk, the arms, etc. And and they have similar kinds of problems. They often, uh, again, they pretty much 100% have problems with erections and problems with uh, ejaculation. And, and that group of people are not usually as uh, affected by the medications like Viagra. They tend not to be quite as uh, uh, effective for, for, that, for that group. And all of these people, men and women, uh, bladder functioning is, uh, is sacrificed, bowel functioning, is sacrificed. Uh, and again, even things like uh, transferring in and out of the wheelchair, they'll need assistance like that. So there are a lot of a lot of different uh, systems that are affected by the injuries. Yes, and, and a lot of those systems don't lend themselves to a sexual context or a sexual environment, like a or a sexy environment, as I, as I should say. That's true. You know, having a That's stoma true. or a catheter is, is not going to make one feel very sexy. That's right. I mean, most, for example, most men use intermittent catheterization to empty their bladder, which means that they uh, put a tube into the urine, into the uh, penis, to empty the bladder maybe four or five times a day, uh, or, or they have an indwelling catheter that stays in there all the time. And, and some men do have sexual intercourse, even with a, a catheter in place. They fold it down the side of the penis and put a, a condom on top. Uh, for, for men who do intermittent catheterization, we always recommend that they empty their bladder before they have sexual intercourse. Otherwise, it could be, uh, and, and there always could be some leakage of the bladder. So it's important that they have a towel handy or a, a urinal or something like that just to uh, prepare for, for any accidents. And the same thing for women. Many women have indwelling catheters in place, and if they're going to have sexual intercourse, typically they leave the catheter in, sort of tape it to the side on the side of their legs, and have sexual intercourse even with the catheter in place. Or they remove it, and again, there's just always the, the danger of uh, some urine leakage. Uh, and uh, that's something, again, I'll stress uh, every step of the way here, how important it is uh, to talk about these in the communication that, you know, you've got to tell your partner, hey, this is how it works. I might have, uh, there may be some spillage in urine. We need to be prepared. Don't freak out if, uh, if this happens and, uh, you know, try and take it in stride. And again, it, it's, it's the attitude of the, of the person with the spinal cord injury. If, if they can sort of deal with it without feeling ashamed or embarrassed and just take you know as a natural thing that kind of happens they can put their uh, partner at ease and the, and the same kind of thing in terms of the bowel function it's possible to you can do everything you can to try and prevent a bowel accident from happening but uh, there's no guarantee uh, essentially we encourage people to really time their sexual activity at a at a time when they have not recently um, eaten a big dinner or and when their stomach is uh, relatively empty. Uh, or, or to have, many people have bowel program maybe every other day. So there are certain days after their bowel has been emptied that it's gonna be safer for them to have, uh, 
to be intimate and have a sexual encounter uh, than it will at other days. But again, there's no guarantees that uh, there can be gas, there can be uh, some degrees of a bowel movement. And, and the other thing that, I mean, there's a, it, it just does go to show you that the spontaneity that we kind of think about sex before an injury is just not there after the injury. There's so much preparation in terms of getting somebody into bed and dressing them, uh, dealing with the bladder, dealing with the bowels, all those type of things. That And the other thing that they have to, many people with spinal cord injury have a condition called autonomic dysreflexia, which means that their blood pressure uh, uh, is very unstable. And uh, any kind of uh, uh, any kind of external or obnoxious stimulation uh, can really increase their blood pressure to dangerous levels. And sometimes uh, the sexual stimulation can do that as well. So that uh, they have to be really on, uh, uh, on guard about uh, their blood pressure, things like that uh, during sexual activity. Other people might have uh, tremors or uh, in, in their extremities. So there are a lot of medical things that can also occur during sexual contact that people have to be aware of and sort of uh, mindful of. So it's uh, it takes some time. I, I tell people that having, having sex, and, and a lot of people, they want to have sex right after a spinal cord injury and, and are hoping and expecting yeah, those first few times are going to be great sex. To me, it's uh, the goal is to have good sex down the road. It takes it's going to take some practice. Uh, it's going to take a really uh, some great communication. It's going to take a partner who who can really be patient and kind of work with the uh, with the person with the spinal cord injury. And yes, you, you can reach that goal of having great sex. Maybe for many people, I hear them say their sex is better than it was before the injury. But it doesn't come overnight. It takes a lot of uh, practice and a lot of uh, working together. It's learned, actually. The pleasure is learned. Relearned, let me say. It's relearned. You know, I just want to almost recap what you've said because I think there's so so much of value in that. I I imagine that somebody listening to this who, who doesn't have a spinal cord injury is going, oh, my goodness, how could one even deal with this? You know, how could we add a catheter or a stoma or, you know, the fact that it can't be spontaneous, although I don't believe sex is ever spontaneous, but that's an aside, you know, all of that stuff. And then we've got to think about blood pressure and and kind of overall medical health. And there's so much that could seem to take away from the experience of sex. But what you've said and and the, the expertise you've been sharing with us is so important because you've said Having sex is completely and absolutely possible, even after a spinal cord injury, even if you have a catheter, even if you need to be monitoring your blood pressure. It's just that you have to change your expectations around sex and pleasure, and you have to change the way you experience sex and pleasure. And if you can do those two things, what actually happens is that we often have you know, patients with spinal cord injuries reporting higher levels of satisfaction and pleasure once they get into it, once they learn, when they find their rhythm, you know, for me anyway, so much of, of that seems to do with intimacy and the communication is an absolute foundation of that intimacy without communicating. And unfortunately, couples everywhere in every population group do not communicate effectively and do not communicate enough. We're not taught how to do that. So, 
you have to communicate. You don't have anything else. You've got to communicate and you've got to be honest and open and upfront and clear with your needs, with what's happening for you, with what your partner is experiencing. Everything has to be shared with no qualms and no fear and no shame. Even though I imagine that, you know, as you say, initially, there might be expectations or it'll be fine. It'll be great. Like it was, it'll be, you know, nothing will change. You have to almost help your patients overcome those psychological barriers that they're going to face and maybe some disappointment. I'm, I'm not sure. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. And to sort of uh, add, add to that, the culture of many communities around the world uh, have such uh, strong dictates about sexuality and about who and when and how uh, sex can be enjoyed that, uh, that many people just uh, are so unfamiliar with, uh, with talking about these kinds of things uh, in an open, uh, honest kind of way that uh, it's very difficult. Uh, people, people just aren't, aren't brought up uh, sort of with that understanding that they can that they can talk about these things in, in an open in an open kind of way. I absolutely agree with you. So if we've got somebody listening with a spinal cord injury, so they themselves are the individual who has that spinal cord injury, what do you think is important for them to know? What is kind of like the real crux of what's important for them to know? I think it's important that they get to know their body uh, early on. Uh, and um, because that, as we said, they're going to be the one that's going to be responsible for educating their partner about uh, how things work and what, uh, what helps them in a sexual way. And uh, sex from a, we'll call it a physiological perspective, sort of changes over time after the injury. That, uh, think, you know, just like uh, people walking or finger, hand-figure coordination might improve. Sexual functioning uh, also does too. Uh, I, I, I sort of ask people to be exploring their sexuality um, on, an, on a regular basis. They need to know sort of, for example, what parts of my body can I feel pleasure? Can I feel uh, pleasure? Again, with, especially with these partial injuries, they may feel some pleasure on the nipples or the anus, but not on the genitals or inside the thigh. We, they want It's important to identify areas where you still can feel pleasure because again, those might become your new erogenous zones. Uh, one of the things that uh, you need to break away from is that your genitals are sort of your main erogenous area because it, the line of demarcation, many of these people uh, have uh, feeling stops around the nipple line. And that area for many people is a, is a very erotic area to be stimulated and touched. So I have people sort of, where can you feel? And how does that change? How is that changing over time? What pressure can you feel? Can you feel if your partner touches you hard or do you get good sensation if she's or he's uh, sort of using a feather to touch you? you? You need to kind of figure out again, what feels better? How much pressure? Uh, where do I have intact sensation? Things like that. And which, as a general, which part of the body is going to give you the greatest sexual pleasure? Uh, again, it might be um, might be your feet. Uh, again, as I said, a lot of people have intact sensation and even more 
sensitive sensation uh, around the head. So, I mean, what might be uh, an erotic kind of thing is a man rubbing his penis against his partner's ears or neck or things like that, uh, that, um, that give them the most intimate, sexual, sensual kind of pleasure. That's what I mean in terms of things, kind of the old rules are you got to throw them out and start over again. And, and I, I encourage people to, to use as many senses as they can. Try to try, leave the lights on. Try and uh, maybe have a little music going. Try and you know, maybe play a little food in bed and use taste. Uh, talk and sort of uh, be talking. Oh, I like it when you do this. I like it. So use as many senses as you can. Everything you can do to kind of enhance the experience. Everything that you've said there involves being curious and being open um, to exploring and really not just sticking to what you you think you know or what you know already. Yeah, what you knew before. What you knew before, right? And you just you described like, you know, just going straight for the genitals. I talk about it like the three-point plan, the breast, nipples, and genitals. That seems to be what what people think of as foreplay is only breast, breast, nipples, and genitals, but the whole body can have yeah. areas that are heightened to sexual simulation. Those erogenous zones that you mentioned. And a, a person with a spinal cord injury may discover, as you said, that actually their ear becomes a real hotspot for them. It becomes Absolutely. a real source of sexual pleasure. And I, you, you spoke a lot about the physical. And I think, I, you know, I, I trying to really kind of, drill home this point that the brain is the biggest sex organ and I, I mentioned this at the start of this conversation that while of course there are psychological impacts from the trauma of this experience your brain is still there it can still engage in sexual content in a positive um, empowering pleasurable way and you can do that so fantasy watching pornography watching your partner get undressed or or do something Absolutely. very sexy for you in front of you as you said using those senses using your vision having the lights on seeing each other or even just looking to each other's eyes or just thinking about something incredibly sexual can you know a lot there are a lot of people out there that are able to bring themselves to orgasm through thought alone and Absolutely. so using this biggest sex organ up here in your brain to heighten your experience of sexual pleasure. So I think from what you've said, you know, someone with a spinal cord injury to explore their bodies. But I assume then as well, for those listening who care for someone with a spinal cord injury, or, or, or let me rather say those who are are the partner of somebody with a spinal cord injury. What do they need to know? What, how should they approach the situation? If the, the person with a spinal cord injury needs to be curious about their bodies and learn and explore, what should the partner do? I think one of the things that I've seen uh, in my work is um, the partners are very tentative initially. They're, they're concerned that they might injure the person further they don't want to cause any pain. They're nervous about trans, you know, maybe moving them around in bed or, or doing things that uh, uh, could, uh, could cause pain. And uh, I think most of that uh, is, is their anxiety of getting started and uh, sort of just getting engaged. I, I think the person with a spinal cord injury needs feedback in terms of um, I like it when you do this, or I don't get as much pleasure on this. This feels really good. Let's do this. Sometimes the uh, I think the partner 
uh, needs to almost take the lead sometimes because the, uh, the person with a spinal cord injury is tentative. They're not sure about how much they're pleasing. They're struggling with, am I still a man? Am I still a woman? Am I going to be able to please my partner? And getting that kind of validation back is really important uh, to be able to move forward. And uh, uh, the individual with the injury needs to sort of have have their confidence built up. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to be intimate. That's why it takes sometimes a very long time after people are discharged before they start being intimate. It's uh, such a scary thing. And I also, uh, again, as we've talked about before, uh, the sex doesn't happen in a vacuum. If the person is depressed, if they're still struggling with the injury and or they're experiencing some post-traumatic stress issues or anxiety, uh, all of those kinds of things are going to impact uh, sort of their ability to be to be in the moment and to be engaged. And uh, uh, they, they may need some support on that. They may, incur- may need some encouragement to go and talk to somebody around some of those issues. Because those emotional issues play a big role in terms of just uh, how interested a person is going to be in sex. It's going to affect their libido and uh, sort of their their willingness to, to really take uh, these risks. That makes total sense. It's, as you say, it doesn't just occur in a vacuum. It can't just, you know, happen. Yeah. You you almost need to be looking at what things could be impacting your ability to engage sexually, you know, mentally, psychologically, physiologically on top of the injury and the, the difficulties that that brings about from a physical perspective. So yes, the anxiety, the depression, perhaps there's some substance use. I don't know. That's often something that we might see. Um, All of those sorts of things can affect their ability to, to tap into this part of themselves um, and to really engage with that yeah. part of themselves and with a partner. I mean, so, so that must have a big impact then on the relationship. It does have an impact. On it. I th- it's really important that the partner um, have uh, some place to get support. Uh, sort of, uh, it's a very emotionally and physically demanding role initially until you sort of work out the kinks and, uh, get into a rhythm about it and uh, you're facing this for the first time usually. Uh, so it is important. The partner needs some place to be able to get emotional support and a place to talk and a place to take care of themselves and uh, sort of uh, charge their own energy, charge their own batteries. That is such an important point. You know, being the partner of someone with a spinal cord injury If you have a carer, if you have a full-time carer, that is, you know, fantastic. But for many, many, many people, their partner becomes the carer almost by default. And that can have a major impact on the partner and their mental health, their psychological well-being and on the relationship. And I'm so as well. And on exactly on 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 their desire to be sexual as well. And and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that that's often a forgotten um, part of this process, whether it's a spinal cord injury or breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, another type of disability, the partner and the impact that it's going to have on them is often not spoken about. It's often neglected. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because without a doubt, there are 
there needs to be, there needs to be space for both partners to get support outside of the relationship. As, yeah. as Esther Perel says, you know, you cannot be your partner's village. And here, especially because of how much that will require of you psychologically. Yeah, it takes a, it takes a huge toll. And uh, you, you do need a place for yourself to be able to replenish your emotional uh, needs. And absolutely, I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, emphasize that as well. That's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's imperative that we do. But I want to, I want to kind of head just now to to the idea of of what kind of sexual aids or sexual toys might be helpful for a couple to use i don't know if there's anything specific you could recommend that you know of that would be a really um good little tip or a little bit of advice for couples to to explore i think sexual toys are a great thing to uh to explore i think first of all it's sort of uh helps people to be a little bit more creative and uh, sort of have a little fun with kind of being curious. One of the issues is uh, uh, positioning can be a little bit tricky because of the limitations that the person with the spinal cord injury has, uh, both in terms of being able to thrust and being able to enter the partner. So there are a lot of cushions and uh, pads and things that are, that are, um, specifically designed to assist sort of in helping the person uh, find a a position that works best for them. So uh, I think those are great things. Uh, And there are all kinds of uh, uh, vibrators and dildos and sexual toys that I think are are great that uh, they can can supplement sort of the action that the couple, uh, I I think uh, just as a little side note, I think that for some men uh, who have a, a disability, it, it can be a, a little bit uh, threatening if the woman uh, sort of wants to enjoy a, uh, uh, a dildo or some kind of sex toy. It can stir up feelings for the man that he's not good enough or not doing, not doing his job. So again, everything comes with psychological baggage. So everything has to be talked about. But I do think that it's good uh, to, to try uh, some of the vibrators that are available, uh, again, to, to see wh- how they can be used on different parts of the body, whether they can provide sort of a supplement to the stimulation that, uh, that, the, um, that the partner is getting uh, from the man. And, and they're also, I, I encourage, uh, uh, even with uh, masturbation, there are, there are different devices out there that uh, can provide the man some assistance uh, with masturbation. And again, uh, I encourage that because I think that it's, uh, an important part of, uh, the whole sexual experience and, uh, men should sort of be, or everybody should be able to enjoy that as well. So, uh, there are, there are all kinds of websites that are out there that sell, uh, sex toys for people with disabilities and, uh, various magazines and catalogs. I'd really encourage people to to pursue that again uh, you've got to kind of get it out of your head that there's that there's anything strange or weird about uh enjoying sex toys because uh they're very natural and can be a lot of fun and i i think 
the word toy is is good. It indicates fun. It indicates playfulness. But also sexual aid is a is a great word that I'll use. It's an aid and an addition. It's not a replacement. It can be something to add on to assist you and aid you in your experience of sex in gaining sexual pleasure and sexual satisfaction rather than ever being something that is replacing you. Um, And, you know, just to touch on the point of vibrators, I don't, again, vibrators are just, you know, everyone goes straight for that, you know, straight for the genitals, women to the clitoris and things like that. And I mean, it's, it's, it's important again to utilize that vibrator in a very different way from what you think you should, or you think, you know, you should, which is to trial it on your ear or trial it on your lips or trial it on the inner thigh, use it to explore if there is different sensation in a different part of the body on both men and women, because that vibrator might bring a whole different type of sexual experience that you've never even had before and might heighten your experience of pleasure to a, another world so i think it's so important that toys and aids whether that's a masturbator whether it's lubricant whether it's a vibrator whether it's a a penis ring um, a vacuum pump whatever it might be you know even if it's a feather or some a blindfold or something that can heighten your senses they can be used in such wonderful creative ways to enhance one's experience of sex and one's experience of pleasure I agree. I, I wanted to also, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of just, it's really being curious and sort of uh, exploring kind of uh, what works best for you. You mentioned about penis rings and uh, things of that nature uh, and uh, medications. Uh, I'm a believer that I think all of those things are great. Uh, but I think if, if people jump too quick, I like to see, I like to encourage people to try kind of doing things naturally, I guess, uh, to give a little time to see how their body is going to adjust before they uh, start using too much equipment and uh, uh, start using rings and things like that, or vac- they have vacuum devices that go over the penis, things of that nature. Um, and, and all of those are good, but uh, I think... Sometimes it's too easy to jump too quickly uh, to things like that. And uh, you kind of miss uh, the opportunity to sort of have a more natural way of uh, being intimate with your partner. But, but you should be aware that, again, pills, medications, hormones, uh, anybody that's sort of uh, struggling in terms of their functioning down the road should have a medical appointment and uh and see what can be, what's available to supplement, like you said, uh, the functioning that they can get on their own. Wait a couple of months or so after injury. So I get it, see how it goes first. So be patient. Don't rush into things. Heal, be adjust. Be it will happen. Adjust. But it, it, it's, it's something that is is just ahead of you, but not right now when you are just trying to adjust and kind of come to terms with the fact that you are in a different body. Same body, but a different body. Great sex is the goal. Not going to happen overnight. I think that's such a good place for us to kind of wrap up, um, Stan. And I I just wanted to ask, in all the time that you've been doing this work, what has been the thing that surprised you the most? I I 
think the uh, thing that uh, surprised me the most uh, is that the number of people who uh, come uh, and tell me that they are uh, that they still have a very happy uh, relationship, they have great marriages, and they have good intimate relationships uh, even years after their spinal cord injury. It just really has shown me just sort of how powerful people are and uh, sort of their their strength um, to be able to to overcome what you know what what seemed initially like insurmountable odds. That's so nice to hear because I I hope that if someone is listening to this um, that is adjusting to their injury that it gives them hope that I hope so. this doesn't mean the end of everything that you've experienced before. It just means the start of different things. And uh, again, that it's still possible that you, you can have a great quality of life after a spinal cord injury. And, and uh, this is uh, a part of it. Uh, if you, if you so choose. If you so choose. So Stan, where can people find out about the work that you're doing? Where can they reach I, you? I have a website, uh, stanleydusharm.com. I, I have some articles on there and uh, some information about some of the work that I'm doing. Uh, let me just say some of the work, can I just sort of say one thing? I'm very happy about We have a group of people working with WHO uh, that uh, is now developing uh, guidelines for underdeveloped countries to make sure that sexuality is addressed around the world. And... Uh, we are putting together guidelines in terms of what kind of information, when, all the kind of stuff that we're talking about today. So really excited about that. So you, you can get some of that stuff from WHO uh, as we go along. Anybody is welcome to send me an email to my email address if you have any questions. That email address is Ducharme, my last name, D-U-C-H-A-R-M-E at B-U, like Boston University, dot E-D-U. Thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you for that generous, generous offer. And my, obviously my listeners can't see this, but I was really smiling when you were talking about that WHO um, work that you're doing, because that's so needed. It is so needed and so necessary and it's about time. So (laughs) I'm really thrilled to hear that you're involved, but Stan, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really, I think that just really shows you again, how, how far we've come along that WHO is, including that type of uh, information uh, around the world. So, Absolutely. Really we've, we've come far, but we've still got a long way to go. You said it. Well, thank you for your generosity of your time. Talk with you. It's great. I'm, I'm really grateful yeah. I got to speak to you. And, and I hope, you know, there's a lot more opportunities for us to speak and for me to learn from you in the future. I hope so. Hopefully, uh, we'll meet up in South Africa again. When yes, it's time, so yes somewhere else. please, please come back. Please come back after COVID. The sun is sh- well today. The sun was shining for the first time in a long time, but South Africa is ready and waiting. So we hope to see you soon. This episode was sponsored by Desia. Desia believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For fifteen percent off use the code for a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it.
Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.